Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marianne Kilgore. Today, we're discussing birds and their behavior. Joining me is Dr. Kim Mateau, the Canada Research Chair in Integrative Ecology and an Assistant Professor in the University of Alberta Department of Biological Sciences. Using ecology, physiology, and psychology, her work focuses on how and why animals make decisions and how individuals value and act on information, how they share information within groups, and what value that information has in adapting and reducing uncertainty. Most of her fieldwork is with bird populations, including red knots and black-capped chickadees. Well, thanks for speaking to me today. No problem. So your research, the papers generally don't use the word personality, but when they get picked up by journalists, that's the word that gets used a lot. So is it fair to say that your research looks at the personalities of birds? That I'm actually, that's a very astute question. I'm surprised it means you've really read my papers. Um, Because uh, I don't really like the term animal personality very much. um, Because I think it's easily uh, sort of misconstrued by um, people who aren't working directly in the field. Um, So what animal personality refers to is this observation that in any population of organisms, when when individuals express what are called labile traits, so things that can vary across different expressions and behaviors, the one we think of a lot, um, often individuals differ in predictable ways. And that's what we call animal personality. Um, And people often then confuse this notion of personality with specific traits being analogous to personality or interchangeable with the word personality. Um, So, for example, I'm going to measure the exploration personality trait. Uh, And the the problem with that is that personality is not actually, it's confusing, but it's it's not actually a characteristic of an individual. It's a characteristic of individuals within the population that you're considering, if that makes sense. And so I avoid using the word often um, just to avoid the risk that uh, anyone misconstrues this kind of work as measuring, you know, personality traits like what we would do with humans in animals, because that's not really what we're doing. We're just quantifying differences between individuals. So what sort of behaviors and traits are you typically looking at among populations of birds? So my start in behavioral ecology came um, really with a focus on foraging behavior. Uh, So what do animals eat? When do they eat? How much time do they spend eating? When will they eat if a predator's around? When won't they eat if a predator's around? And so a lot of the kinds of behaviors that I'm interested in are behaviors associated with foraging. Um, so some of the obvious ones would be simple things like measuring feeding rates of birds out in the wild, uh, looking at how quickly they come back to a feeder when something scary has happened there. And then sort of a new direction of my work has been to also try to understand how animals gather information and learn about the distribution of food. So how do you go about measuring those sorts of things? Like if you're, if we're talking about how birds behave when predators are around, predators are kind of hard to control 
they they're off doing their own thing. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we do we do experiments if we want to get nice clean data. Um, and so the, the work that I'm doing locally, so at, I'm in, based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton in Canada. And locally, I work with birds that are called black capped chickadees, which most people in North America um, know and recognize and probably find to be very cute. Um, but they're also really remarkable birds because uh, where we are in Edmonton, I'm not sure how how broadly uh, this podcast is listened to, but where we are in Edmonton, in winter, we can get days that it's minus 40 degrees Celsius. Um, and black-capped chickadees are little 10-gram birds that stay here all year round. So they're non-migratory. Um, and so those are the birds that I'm interested in looking at here because the fact that they're here kind of violates actually a lot of laws that we have in ecology. They shouldn't be here if they're that small and it's this cold. Um, but they are and they thrive. And so the way we study them here is that when we catch individuals, we give them a little microchip, which is called a passive integrated transponder or PIT tag. Mm -hmm. And these are, they're called passive because they don't require a battery. Uh, and that's really handy if you're working with a really small animal, um, because no matter how small you make a battery, a battery is pretty heavy to a 10 gram bird. And how heavy a bird is matters a lot, of course, for things like flight. So we are able to put on these really, really light things. They're less than 0.1 grams. And then that gives us an opportunity to detect their presence for the rest of their life. And the way we do that is we put antennas around feeders that we set up. And if we're interested, for example, in how they respond to predators, uh, we put feeders out in the winter because they'll definitely use them because it's really cold and they need a lot of food to survive at minus 40. And then we can do experimental presentations either of predators using mounts or of sounds of predators or sounds of things that are perceived as threatening, like hearing the mobbing calls of chickadees, and then look at how individuals respond using this technology, because we can then just passively get data on how they adjust their feeding rates when there's been a queue of a predator around, how long they avoid coming back to the same feeder, do they switch their, um, their space use patterns and start using different feeders, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm, I have to admit, I'm pretty fond of chickadees. They're adorable. Um, but they are very good at finding bird seed. Like, we, we, we are not very good at refilling our bird feeders, but we had a squirrel open up the bucket of bird food. And it was a very short period of time before there were chickadees all over the place get, going after the seeds. So are the chickadees, <sighs> I guess my question is, how do individual chickadees respond to really inconsistent food sources, like my poorly refilled bird feeder? Are they checking them often, or are they just going to the sources where they think they'll regularly get food? Well, they're doing lots of things all at the same time, um, which I guess is not surprising when you think about, like, these are little 10-gram birds that are going to be here through the whole winter, right? While well, we put on jackets that are filled with like the top quality down feathers or the best of synthetic material, they're just out there and they're out there 24 hours a day. Uh, so they do lots of things. So one of the things that they do is uh, like what you alluded to is they sample. Um, so even if they know where there's a predictable food source and they're using it regularly, they don't only go to that food source. They keep exploring other areas within their winter home range 
Uh, so chickadees have stable flocks in the winter um, and they defend a particular winter territory and they'll be kind of cruising the area to um, keep tabs on where foraging opportunities might arise, like a researcher putting out a feeder or a person putting a feeder out in their backyard. But they also, at this time of year, do a lot of caching. Um, so if you have a feeder out right now, you might notice that it's emptied very, very quickly. Uh, and that's because they can be storing thousands of seeds a day that they will then use throughout the winter. So they keep up-to-date information about where food is. They store stuff all over their territory, sort of as a safety net in case they don't manage to find food. And the other thing they do is they put on a little bit of extra fat, which gives them a little bit of wiggle room to manage to cope if they have a day where they show up and you haven't refilled your feeder. So when they're storing uh, seed caches, mm -hmm. where are they hiding these seeds? In trees or like? Yeah, all over the place. They're tucking them into trees and they're, they don't do like what squirrels do, which is a midden where they put a whole bunch in one spot. They store individual seeds all over the place. So are some of them better at remembering where they've put seeds than others? Or is it more that everybody's stashing seeds all over the place and whoever gets back to it first is the winner? Well, so that's one of the things that we're we're interested in trying to understand. Um, so one of the things we're starting with first is we're starting with the, the information side. So we're looking at which individuals are investing more in keeping tabs on what's going on at different feeders. Um and then, of course, related to that is who's really good at retrieving caches. Um, and we haven't gotten into that yet. Of course, in the field, there's the challenge of us keeping track of where they have their caches. Mm -hmm. So cache retrieval, something that's studied more commonly um, in laboratory settings. And that's not something we've started doing yet. We are just doing field, um, field experiments in my population right now. So... Um with the population that you're studying right now, they've got microchips, you have antennas, so you can sort of see where they're going. What, um, so you mentioned predator mounts. What other experiments are you doing to see how you can affect their behavior and how individuals respond? Yeah, so um, the experiments that we did last year in my population were done um, by my master's student, Josue Arteaga, um, and what he was interested in was how individuals respond to cues of predation and whether they value different kinds of information differently. And so for the, this predator experiment, we had um, mounts of a common predator of black-capped chickadees, uh, which are merlin. And then we had acoustic cues as well, which were the mobbing calls of chickadees that were produced in response to merlin. Um, because chickadees also are, they're, they're cool in so many ways, but they produce mobbing calls that give information about the type of predator that they're mobbing in response to. So you, you can't just scare chickadees with anything and then record their mobbing calls. If you want to be presenting a mobbing call that reflects the threat of a merlin, you need to present them with a merlin to get those mobbing calls. They change the number of D notes at the end of their like chickadee dee dee call in response to sort of the level of threat that's imposed. But so he was interested in how they um, combine different types of information to get a more accurate or appropriate response. 
and looking at how much individuals differ, and they differ tremendously. So in response to the same um, cue of predation, some individuals might return to feed within 10 or 15 minutes of the threat being gone, and others wouldn't come back for over two hours. Hmm. And for a chickadee in the winter, two hours not using a particular feeder with the rest of your flock is a huge, huge cost to pay. So some of them are much more avoiding predators than others. Um, And now this year, what we're doing in the population is looking at the information use. So we have lots of different feeders uh, set up. When we work at the University of Alberta Botanic Garden, which is uh, relatively close to the university, so nice and accessible, um, but also a garden that's closed in the winter uh, because there's not a lot going on botanically in Edmonton between (laughs) November and March. Um, So it's a nice, nice place to work where... uh, we can get around. We've got little roads that we can drive on, nice and accessible, uh, but not too busy with other people. So we can have these experiments running without um, unexpected interference. And what we're doing here is putting a whole array of feeders out and experimentally deciding whether or not there will be food in the feeder on a given day. And the feeders are designed that chickadees have to really go to the feeder to assess whether or not there's food in it. So they're opaque. The opening is very small. And then we look at things like how often they'll return to a feeder that was empty on a previous visit. And that's a measure of investing in information because their last visit told them there's no food here. And then we want to know how often are they willing to come back to check whether or not that has changed. Um, And those experiments are just about to start in a few weeks. So we don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, But with most kinds of behaviors that you measure, if you look for it, individuals are not all coming to the same solution to any given problem uh, and they do things differently. And then the next step is to understand how and why that behavioral variation matters. And so that's another advantage of working with a marked population is that we can get data on when those individuals stop coming to our feeders. And because chickadees have stable groups and they're residents, they don't migrate, when they stop coming to our feeders, we know that it's because they've probably died. And so we can look at whether or not individuals that invest more in information have better overwinter survival, for example. Do, at least in studies you've done before, I know you're still working with the chickadees, but do birds, do their, I guess, various behavioral traits tend to cluster like if there's one bird that's very reluctant to come back to a feeder does that correlate with some other behavioral trait or are they are our birds sort of mix and match of of anything you can measure yeah uh so yes and yes uh so certain kinds of traits generally do seem to coincide with each other Um, And in ways that make sense. So, for example, um, birds that are more risk-taking when there's a predator around are often also the ones that are more exploratory and that move through their environment more and gather information. Um, And that that can make sense that some individuals just have a higher threshold for accepting what's called probabilistic risk. um, Because not knowing where food is and not knowing where predators are are both types of risk that individuals might encounter. Um, So sometimes they cluster uh, and then sometimes they don't. And that basically comes down to whether or not 
what you're measuring are traits that are sort of part of the same functional unit. So they, they have the same, they, they contribute to the same sort of function in the organism, or they're just a totally independent function, and then they're free to vary independently from those other traits. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so if actually I'm drawing a blank on what another trait would be, but I can see how if you have an individual who seems to value having information, then they're going to undertake behaviors that provide them with more information about their environment. Right. And they might do that in all kinds of different contexts, right? They might do it for information about predators and information about mates and information about food. And then if you look at something that's totally um, independent of that, um, for example, there, well, it's, yeah, it is hard to come up with things that are totally independent. Um, but if you think of something like, um, then just like general levels of activity that might not be related to what individuals invest in learning um, or something like um, individual differences in vigilance behavior. So how you invest in scanning the environment that would probably load onto an information type function do so we we talked you mentioned already about uh the mobbing calls where they convey information on what predator they've encountered um how else do chickadees or or other types of birds that you've studied go about sharing information so mobbing calls are an example of really um it's an evolved signal. So they actively signal when a predator has been in the area. Um, and that has meaningful information for their group members. That helps them also let the predator know that the predator has been seen. Uh, in the foraging context, we think a lot of the information sharing that happens is uh, what we call inadvertent. So not that individuals are signaling, hey, I, there's a lot of food over here. Uh, come and join in. Although that does happen in some species when there's a surplus of food or if there are benefits to attracting other individuals to the area, uh, for example, to reduce predation risk by having a, a larger group. Um, but in chickadees, for example, if they put um, caches in the feed in, in trees and they've got seeds scattered around, as far as we know, they don't advertise those things. But individuals may observe another individual caching food and exploit it at a later date. So that individual is still getting information. It's getting social information about where there's food, but not, not because the individual that located the food is actively conveying that information. Do you have an idea if these sorts of behaviors that uh, vary between individuals are because of, more so because of genetic traits or because of how they've been raised or the environment they've experienced. Yeah. So likely a bit of, a bit of everything, um, which might sound like a, a non answer, but the truth is in, in ecology, there aren't often simple answers. The world is complicated and, and systems are complicated and they're responding to lots of things. Um, so certainly we do know that for lots of behaviors, uh, if you would do, for example, a cross-fostering experiment and have young get raised by different parents, we can estimate that lots of the behaviors have a heritable component. Um, but even when they do have a heritable component, 
It's never 100%. Just like anything we would measure in people, any kind of behavior also won't be completely uh, genetically determined. So genes play a, a bit of a role. Environment plays a role. Um, and the environment can play a role in two main ways. One is what we would call permanent environment effects. So aspects of the environment early in the life of an individual that have effects that then last for the rest of that individual's life. And that happens for things like if there's uh, you know, an abundance of food or particularly stressful conditions during early development that can set individuals on a specific trajectory that they they get stuck on, even if the food regime changes. Right. So even if you grow up with no food and then later in life, there's lots of food around various aspects of your physiology are going to have already been set to that low food availability. And that's going to have consequences for how you express behaviors. Um, and then there's lots of um uh, non-permanent environment effects, which is basically the environment you're in right now d- dictates your behavior. And that's things like if there's a predator at the feeder, you don't feed in the same way as you did 10 minutes ago when there wasn't a predator at the feeder. So there's lots of like minute to min- minute and moment to moment adjustment of behavior as well. Do you have any evidence for or does it look like that the sort of distribution of various behavioral traits differs from from like flock to flock or area to area or does it is it probably the sort of thing that's pretty evenly distributed among all chickadees of a particular species yeah so that's one also again like one of the things that we are hoping to be able to look at down the road um so i i should say i started at the university of alberta in 2017 uh so it's a relatively new study that we have going on here. Um, and so we're starting sort of with the basics, looking at individuals and then how those individuals affect their groups. And down the road, one of the questions that we would definitely be interested in looking at is, you know, are all the groups the same? So do you get like a homogenous mix of individuals in each of the groups? Or do some groups have lots of individuals that value information and other groups have lots of individuals that respond really strongly to predators? Um, and we don't know that yet. That's one of the things that, that we're hoping to, to get to. Um, and my expectation would be that, that groups will vary in the mix of individuals that they have. And also what is the then average phenotype or the average set of behaviors in any given group? Um, partly because if individuals differ either genetically or from permanent environment, environment effects, then just by chance, you're going to get groups with different types of individuals. Um, But the other thing is that if the groups have winter territories in areas that differ in things like how many predators are overlapping with your territory, how many other seed competitors are overlapping with your territory, what's the microhabitat like, you know, do you get lots of wind exposure or not very much wind exposure, all of those things are going to change how that group should behave in order to maximize their fitness. Right. So like like a lot of things in life, depending on what they're surrounded by will affect probably what the population is doing. Exactly. How do these sorts of information uh, valuing versus, I guess, sort of risk averse um, 
behavioral traits affect uh, things like caring for uh, nestlings and whatnot in birds because parents are going to be flying back and forth and obviously you don't want predator to know where the nest is and all of that sort of behavior. Yeah, so that's also one of the questions that's been um, interesting to look at in some other species of birds. So for example, um, great tits are a species of bird uh, found throughout Europe that are one of the, so they're sort of like the European version of the black-capped chickadee. So they're very, very widely studied. Um, but one of the things that they have as an advantage compared with chickadees is that um, chickadees are what we call primary excavators. So they like to dig their own holes in old trees in order to build a nest. Um, whereas the birds in Europe, the great tits, are not primary excavators. They use um, cavities that have been made by other species. And because the ones in Europe are willing to use cavities made by other species, it means you can put a box out with a hole in it and they'll treat that as a nest. Um, so they're really easy and really amenable to breeding studies, uh, whereas chickadees are incredibly difficult because you've got to go out and find the cavities in the forest. They're often not going to be where a researcher would have put them if they wanted to maximize access by people. Uh, so they're often very high up on trees that are um, kind of dying and wobbly, uh, so not so easy to get to the top of. So we don't do a lot of breeding work on black-capped chickadees here. Um, but for the European species, people do a lot of winter work because they're also a resident bird. So they're in, wherever they are, they're there year-round. Um, and what they've found is that often the behavior in the winter is not related to what you see going on in the breeding season. So you can measure individuals in the winter and... You can measure whatever, uh, like their risk-taking, their foraging behavior, their exploration, and they differ in predictable ways. You can measure those same things in the breeding season, and they differ in predictable ways. But if you know how an individual behaves in the winter, you cannot predict how that individual will behave in the breeding season. Oh, really? Which is a weird thing uh, that we don't fully understand yet, but one, one possibility is that with breeding, they basically get so rewired like physiologically and hormonally that they're they become just sort of a different beast and it's not um it's not so easy to relate winter behavior to breeding behavior so a bird that's uh very interested in exploring territory and comes back to uh, a food supply quickly after a predator shows up might behave in a very risk-averse way when it's got uh, chicks to look after? Yeah, it might. Or it might behave in a very risk-prone way, or it might appear risk-indifferent. So it's not it's not that there's specifically a negative relationship. Like, if you do a high value in the winter, you do a low value in the, the summer. It's really just, like, that the deck gets reshuffled. Hmm. I mean, so this is specifically for one species, to be fair, right? So we can't say that this is the general pattern everywhere. Um, but for a couple of the traits that have been looked at, the the winter behavior is not indicative of the breeding behavior. So how do, um, in, in great tits, I guess, the, the various sort of risk aversion and uh, information gathering behaviors, how does that work with uh, with a nest to look after. 
do some of the birds like avoid their nests for really long periods of time or because uh, that's got to have an impact on on the chicks yeah absolutely so um it's looked at in a few different ways so so one of the ways that people study behavior a lot in this context where they're interested in looking at how individuals differ is to use things that are called um, standardized behavioral assays which very often means putting an animal either in a white box or a white room. Um, and we call that a novel environment um, because presumably most wild animals haven't experienced being in white boxes or white rooms before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then measure how they move around. And a common interpretation of this is that how much they move around in one of these new environments tells you something about how they're investing in gathering information. Um, and so these these tests are used a lot because we talked about a little bit earlier how behavior is also affected by current environment. And so the idea is that if you can put everyone into the same environment, then at least it's a level playing field. And, and so these have been a popular way of looking at behavior. And this is one of the things that's been done, um, which is, you know, catch an animal in the winter or in the breeding season and put it in a white room or white box. And that's a, a way of quantifying the behavior. Um, the other kinds of things that people might look at in the breeding season are, how long does it take a parent to return to the nest when something has happened there? And something happening could be uh, that a researcher has gone to measure something at the nest, and then we can measure how long before the parents return. Or you can do similar things to what we have done in the winter with the chickadees, um, where we present a model of a predator, but instead of putting it at a feeder, you put a model of a predator somewhere near the nest box, and then you look at how long before the parents come back. Um and yes, absolutely, longer delays are coming at a cost for offspring in terms of growth rates. Um, but when there's a predator around, a nest predator, delaying coming back could mean that you don't reveal the location of the nest to that nest predator. So there's a trade-off between the benefit of avoiding being detected and the cost of not provisioning your young at the rate that would optimize their growth. That sort of behavior and um, and response to predators, some birds are are going to uh, feed their nestlings more frequently, but then increase the risk that the predator knows where their nest is. Some birds are going to feed their nestlings less frequently, fre- frequently, which I guess depending on how much food is available may or may not have a major impact on them. But yeah, would you expect? So I guess, is there an advantage to having a mix of those different combinations of behaviors in a population? Uh, well, so we when we think about behaviors um, and, and whether they're adaptive or not, we usually think about how they serve an individual. Um, because if it's for the benefit of a population, uh, that doesn't work very well unless individuals can kind of control who they interact with. Uh, and there's a, a closed population and you can make sure that everyone's cooperating in that they're all behaving in a way that's that's good for the group. So that doesn't happen very often. That's, that's pretty constrictive sets of conditions. Mm-hmm. But it can still be advantageous for individuals um, if there's fluctuating selection. So if in some years it's good to be taking a lot of risk and um, because there's not very much food around, and if you don't take risk, you're never going to find it. 
Uh, and in other years, it's not good to take risk because there's a lot of food around anyways, and you're not really serving yourself by taking unnecessary risk, then you can get situations where different types of individuals are maintained because some do, they, some do well in one year and others do well in another year. Um, and that's then not selection for the group, but just that each type does better under specific sets of conditions. And so they can both be maintained. Right. Okay. So what the group ends up with is going to depend from year to year what types of behaviors were advantageous in a particular Yeah, and so in, in a scenario like that, you would expect then to also get like shifts in the frequencies of the kind of types of individuals. This is a somewhat speculative question, I suppose. But um, so with climate change, where environments are changing in weather extremes, but also things in terms of droughts or uh, or just, you know, forest fires and that sort of thing. Um, would you speculate that various combinations of traits would change from what they have been in the past or that um, things that may have worked out advantageous before wouldn't? Or would you think that the behavior trait mix will probably stay pretty similar? I think that's going to depend on the, the specific traits that you're talking about and the species and the extent to which they've kind of evolved to cope with variance in their environment. Um, but it is one of the things that is particularly interesting when you think about something like information gathering, right? So like how much do animals invest in learning about where they could find food? Um, because of course that, that is really going to be directly relevant to scenarios where the predictability and distribution of food changes. Um, but we need to first know sort of what's, what's the variation in sort of information gathering types of individuals, uh, and, and what the origin of that variation is. So if it's completely genetically wired, which it almost certainly won't be, that's almost never true for behaviors, but if it would be, that has very different implications than if it's something that gets set from early environment effects in terms of how how populations will cope with changes in food predictability. Um, Sorry, I know it's a, it's a vague answer, but we, <laughs> it's a big we basically can't, we can't say, I mean, you I could speculate, but I, I don't like speculating that much that sort of like everything is possible and we need to know a lot more about sort of the basics and what's underlying this variation before I would I would feel making like I would put money on my bet for how the population would shift in terms of the kinds of traits that are expressed. What sort of questions in bird behavior research haven't yet been looked at in detail that you would like to get to or that you hope somebody else gets to? Is it something that there's been a lot of research and you're just filling in the edges or is this the sort of area where there's huge swaths of things we don't know? Um, well, I mean, so people have been studying behavior for a long time and behavioral ecology is a really rich discipline that's had a lot of success in um, making predictions a priori about how organisms should respond under like particular sets of conditions. So certainly we know a lot in behavioral ecology and not just in birds, although birds are, are used a lot as model systems. Um, so we absolutely, we know a lot. Um, 
but there's always more to learn. And I think when you're doing interesting work and you're curious, each answer leads to at least several more questions. Um, so there's no end to the kinds of questions that you might ask with this kind of work. And for me, the things that I'm particularly interested in right now are um, uncertainty. So a lot of the, the classic models in behavioral ecology that are used to predict things like what food will an organism eat? How long should they eat for? Um, they work really well for predicting what the average individual in a population does. Um, and now I'm interested in understanding, like, when can we predict not just what the average individual does, but the whole variation in the population and what they do? And then also adding on to that this layer of, so if you would think of a foraging model, for example, you could put in information about the energy content of prey type one and the energy content of prey type two, and then make predictions about what an animal should eat if they're maximizing their intake rates. But no two prey types have one single value of energy, right? Any given type of prey, you might get a good one or a bad one. And so adding in this variation or uncertainty in what any given encounter with a prey is going to involve, um, I'm really interested in how that shapes outcomes and predictions and whether we can learn more about among individual differences once we start incorporating this uncertainty into the models. Oh, okay, because broad statistical averages are all fine and dandy, but at the end of the day... A flock of birds is not a broad statistical average. Exactly. And the, so it, it, to give it its dues, right, it's really impressive how well we can predict behavior when we, we pretend that the world isn't at all uncertain. And we are like, let's, let's just pretend that there's this average and that's all that organisms are working with. Um, and that, so that is impressive. But now let's dissect that and say, okay, we know that the world isn't one like that the average doesn't represent everything. It is an average of many things. And what happens now if we add that complexity in? Are there some aspects that we're now going to be better able to predict or to understand? Okay. Like when you have more individual level data, what can you do with that that's useful? Yeah. So in terms of like studying among individual differences, how, how do the different types of individuals in a population matter? Or do they always matter? Does Would it be the same as if just, just having, you know, that everyone expressed the same thing? And so the average of the population was the same as each individual. But also, on the other hand, thinking about things like how does a chickadee respond to predation danger? Does it matter if there's uh, some degree of uncertainty about whether a predator is around? Right. So we can... Mm -hmm put a predator there and have them see it. So we're sure that they've seen it. Or you can give like these cues that there could have been a predator around, or maybe there's a predator around. Um, and does changing how much certainty they have about the current situation change outcomes? Right? So sort of like how do animals mitigate uncertainty? How do they invest in information so that they could reduce it? Or do they do other things to circumvent the consequences of uncertainty. Right. You were, your team worked on some other research with red knots that I thought was interesting, where you tried to figure out if their personalities changed in captivity versus 
what they had been uh, uh, before captivity. Could you talk a little bit about that? What did you find from there? Yeah, um, so those were experiments with uh, a shorebird called the red knot. So this is a bird that uh, spends its winters on mudflats around northwestern Europe and breeds in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, and I did this work when I was living in the Netherlands. Um, they have the only experimental shorebird facility in the world. So they have basically a mudflat indoors where you can implement a tidal cycle oh, uh, and you can... Yeah, very cool. It's the, it, yeah, it's a great place. Um, you can implement a tidal cycle and keep birds there in captivity. And so what we were interested in was, on, so we, we already knew from previous work um, that if you catch adults of this species and then we put them into this experimental mud flat with different areas of mud exposed, birds did different things when you put them in there. So some birds spent a lot of time probing in the mud, looking presumably for food and others didn't spend very much time doing that at all. And we could test them again. And the ones that had done it a lot the first time did it a lot the second time. And the ones that didn't do it much the first time, again, didn't spend time searching the second time. And what's really nice with this behavior in particular, so this was work done by um, Dr. Albert Bielefeld at the NEOS, Royal Netherlands Institute for Sea Research, was that he then had those same birds released into the wild and looked at how their patterns of space use in the lab predicted their patterns of space use in the field. And to me, at least, very surprisingly, but also very reassuringly, the behavior in the lab did predict patterns of space use in the field. So the birds that moved around very little in this little this arena, which is seven meters by seven meters, traveled much more on the mudflat on the scale of hundreds of kilometers than the ones that moved very little. And then we know that those kinds of patterns are associated with differences in the type of food that they're eating. So it matters ecologically. It's an important thing that we were measuring in this. Well, not we, I wasn't involved in that initial study, but that was being measured in that initial study. And so the question that we had to follow up with that was, where does this variation come from? Is it something that's innate that birds have from the time that they're born? Or is it something that's sort of reinforced through the experience that they have as they they grow up, right? So if you arrive on southward migration after you've just hatched that year and you happen to find great food and you're able to, you know, cover a small area, does that cause you to then have different sorts of spatial patterns of, of food searching for the rest of your life? So we brought birds into captivity um, when they were really young, so as early as we could get them. Uh, you can't work with large numbers of birds, if you would be bringing them from their breeding grounds, because on the Arctic tundras, they're very, very, very widespread. It's really hard to find nests. It's very expensive to get up there, all kinds of logistical challenges. Um, but so what we did was we caught birds as soon as they arrived in Europe on their, their southward migration. And we brought in birds that were um, just hatched that year and birds that were older. And then we kept them in captivity for two years so that we could look at how the behavioral traits changed over that two-year period and whether or not it was different for birds that had very little experience in the wild versus the birds that had been um, having most of their life in the wild and then already as adults were brought into captivity. And it turned out in this case that, again, it was complicated. It depended on the trait that we looked at. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but for the behavioral trait, which was this movement in the, the mud flat looking for food, that the variation among individuals already existed, even in birds that we caught just as they were arriving on a mud flat for the first time in their life. And then did you track those birds when they got released out to see if they behaved the same way or not in um, this part? Well, so some of those birds were released um, and that there was a there was a technological fail oh. that year, unfortunately. So the they get tracked with tags that require specific towers to be up in the mudflat, uh, and because of bad weather, they they weren't able to have the towers up that year. So we weren't able to follow up, but that that had been the goal. Oh, okay, yeah, that is <laughs> that science. That's it happens. Science. That happens. That's field work. <laughs> um. Do you, do you have any, uh, did you, have you had any, uh, close calls or just really strange encounters with your field work? Um, no. What would be, what would be a strange encounter? I'm not even sure. I mean, we've had it, you know, like that we're out to catch. Well, so my, my graduate student who was doing the experiments last year, uh, is from Ecuador and on his, I think it was his first day in the field. We were out to catch chickadees, um, and he was attacked is too strong of a word. He was approached very closely by a uh, moose, oh. her young, and then subsequently a big bull. Um, but that all went fine. We were a little worried about catching a moose in our mist nets, but that didn't happen. So that was fine. But I guess that's probably one of the, at least in recent memory, strangest almost bycatches that we had. So, sorry, you mentioned a mist net. What's a mist net? So mist nets is how we catch um, a lot of birds. Often they're called mist nets because they're nets. And the idea is that the the filament that they're made with is so fine that it looks like a mist in the air. Uh, So birds don't really see them very well. Uh, And if you're catching in kind of low light conditions, the birds won't see it. And then they fly into it. And the, the net is a bit loose, so they basically fall into sort of um, shelves of the net, and then you just remove them. I can't imagine that the wild birds are particularly keen on getting caught. Um, do, do you basically just hold their wings close so they don't flap around too much and then put them in whatever carrying case you're going to be using to move them around? Yeah, so when we, um, when we catch birds using mist nets... We, we're monitoring the nets like constantly um, because chickadees actually, I mean, certainly they don't want to be caught. It, it's not like a desire that they have, but they they definitely fly into the nets a lot uh, and quite easily. So they're very, very amenable to catching. So we watch the nets constantly so we can get them out right away. And then um, we take some basic measurements once we have them out, um, like body mass, amount of fat stores that they have. We measure their wing length, uh, their tarsus or leg length. Uh, and then we also give them this passive integrated transponder, uh, which goes on like a little a color band that goes on their leg. Um, and there's a standard banders grip that you use when you're holding birds to make sure that they can't flap their wings so that they don't hurt themselves. Um, but all the processing is a couple of minutes per bird. And then they get released. And at least for our birds, um, we know because we're able to track them with the the pit tags, they go on to live normal chickadee lives, apart from the fact that they're contributing a lot to data on the foraging behavior of chickadees. 
how do you know or how can you correct that you aren't predominantly catching the birds that are going to be investigating further afield? Like, w- yeah. w- is your is your bird catching biased towards exploratory birds? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and that's something we were also interested in, um, especially. So initially, we were thinking of using uh, what are called potter traps to catch birds, which are kind of similar to Sherman traps that are used uh, for small mammals. So it's a little cage with a, a trap door that gets knocked down when the animal goes in to find to get food. Um, and that one animals don't sort of get tricked into going into like they can see that there's an object and they're choosing to go in it to get the food Um, and so that's the reason we chose not to use potter traps and we went for the mist nets Um, and the reason is because the mist nets are relatively cryptic to the bird so they they fly in incidentally they're not kind of choosing to fly into the mist net Um, so we think for that reason that it's less likely to have a capture bias. Um, but the other thing is that we, because we mark our birds with color bands on their legs, we know that we're catching more than 90% of the population. Oh, okay. So so we we have that covered. And we haven't looked at yet, which we could do, is whether or not the first birds we catch are different than the ones, you know, that take us much longer before we finally do catch them at a feeder. Um, so we could look at that. We haven't done that yet. Um, but we do catch about 90% of the population. Okay. I didn't realize you were managing to tag that many. How how many chickadees, I guess, is in the flock at the botanical gardens? So uh, within the botanical gardens, there's at least 12 unique flocks, um, oh. probably more. Uh, and so they, they, they have these stable groups over the winter. Um, and then... Flock size varies. It, so if you read the literature, the flock sizes should be around uh, like 8 to 12 at the start of winter or f- as low as 4 to 12. We've had some flocks that are more than 20. Um, and it's it's variable. And then through the winter, uh, especially here, the winters are very harsh. You, you lose individuals. And so by the end of winter, the flock sizes are a little bit smaller. Uh, but we estimate that there's probably over 400 chickadees within our study area. That's a that's a lot of tiny little bands to. It is, yeah. <laughs> does does your team get pretty good at handling tiny little chickadee legs? Yeah, yeah. We get lots of practice with it, and um, have a technician on the project who's been banding for over 15 years. So we're an experienced group of people and people who like to be out in the middle of winter catching and enjoying the beautiful Edmonton winters with the chickadees. Do um, So if a chickadee is part of a flock that's sort of on the smaller end, like four, six individuals, and their flock just through various, you know, predation and environmental haphazards gets quite small, do they join another flock or do they stay with their like with their buddies yeah so if a, if a flock got small enough um if a neighboring flock was also small they could end up fissioning over the winter um, but if the neighboring flock was already large they have sort of an established social hierarchy uh, they might not accept to have other individuals join the flock so it'll depend on what the the set of circumstances is but if 
If neighboring flocks have also suffered high overwinter mortality and they're also on the small side of things, then definitely uh, flocks could fuse. So they might end up just making it through the or trying to make it through the winter with their with their small team. As a yeah, okay. What I I guess I never really thought about this. What sort of social hierarchy do chickadees have? So their their winter flocks have um, a dominant male and a dominant female. Um, and they're usually the ones who have the ter- the winter territory is centered on what was their breeding territory the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond those ones, um, males are dominant over females. Uh, they're slightly larger. And then they have a, it's called a, a linear dominance hierarchy. So each individual has a specific rank within the group. I Yeah, they're so adorable. I guess I'd never really thought about a dominance hierarchy, but... Watch, watch them at your feeder. You'll see some like squabbling over who gets access to the feeder first, and you'll see individuals displacing each other. Yeah. Now that you've mentioned that, yeah. I can I can picture that happening. <laughs> Is there anything that you find really interesting about your research that I haven't asked you about yet? Um. No, I mean I find. Well, I find everything about my research interesting. I feel incredibly lucky that it's what I get to do as my job every day. Um, but I think you've hit on a lot of the main themes. Well, in that case, thank you very much for joining me and taking the time to answer all of my questions. Oh, it was my pleasure. You can learn more about Dr. Mateau and find links to information about her research with birds and their behavior at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. If you're not familiar with black-capped chickadees, here's a recording of a few birds calling to each other. You can hear some short chickadee-dee calls, as well as some Phoebe calls in the background. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with more Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 